How many of you remember 9-11? None of you should remember 9-11 other than our esteemed leaders because none of you were born when the Twin Towers fell. But, but you do remember it in another sense, don't you? Because it has shaped the way you live your life. It is reshaped the way we travel. It's reshaped the way we understand warfare. It has reshaped so many things in our life. And there's a reason for that. It's because events have consequences. Events shape and impact our lives. Maybe you've experienced this on a smaller scale. Maybe uh, a compliment has stuck with you for years, a small event that impacted your life. And normally the way it works is the greater the event, the larger the event, the greater the impact. Well, tonight we're going to look at an event that was so impactful, it shaped the lives of a group of people for the past 4,000 years. I'm referring to, of course, the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and the 10 plagues that came with it. So what I want us to do is to look at this very well-known story and allow it to declare to us who God is and how this event should shape the way we live our lives. And the text is going to do that by, um, by showing us three things. First and foremost, God is the triumphant king. So as we come to this story, I want you to think of it like it's an epic showdown, like two heavyweight champions are entering the ring to duke it out. In one corner, we have Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man and the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And then in the other corner, we have Yahweh, represented by two average guys, Moses and Aaron. So Yahweh makes the first move. He sends Moses and Aaron into Pharaoh's court to demand that he let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh is not one to be bullied or manipulated, and so he counters by kicking Moses and Aaron out of his court and increasing the workload of his Israelite slaves. But this is where God just starts going to town against Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt as a whole, landing blow after blow after blow. He starts by going after their water supply. He turns the Nile River to blood. And then he sends an infestation of frogs. And we're talking frogs everywhere. Frogs in your bed, frogs in your pots, frogs everywhere. And then swarms of gnats flies so thick that you can't step anywhere without crushing a footful of them. And it just keeps getting worse. He kills their livestock. He sends painful boils that cover the Egyptians. He sends hail to destroy their early crops, locusts to eat everything that was left, completely destroying the nation's food supply. He throws them in utter darkness for days upon days. And somehow Pharaoh stays in the ring. He hangs on until God lands the knockout blow, plague number 10, where he sends the angel of death to kill the firstborn male in every family from Pharaoh's household all the way down to the lowest servant. And through all of this, God demonstrates his power. He flexes his might, secures freedom for the Israelites to the point that the Egyptians were begging. They were giving their wealth and possessions away to the Israelites to try to get them to move out of their country faster. But Pharaoh ended up being a, a sore loser. He'd be like a, a boxer who rushes his opponent after the bell has rung. But God 
has the final say when he parts the Red Sea. Uh, That parting of the sea became a passage of freedom for the Israelites and a watery grave for the Egyptians. In in all reality, this showdown wasn't really a showdown. It was more of a one-sided smackdown. (laughs) And the point of the encounter is really spelled out in the first song of the Bible called the Song of the Sea, found in Exodus 15. There the people declare how triumphant God is over all the earth. And that's what we should see about God in this text, that he is in fact the triumphant king over all the world, that nothing, not even the mightiest man in the mightiest nation can stand against him. But that should leave us with a question. Why does God feel to need to flex that type of triumphant might. Like, it's great that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is this super strong guy, but that doesn't give him the right to just start wailing on anyone he wants. There has to be a reason to flex that type of might, which is the second thing this story wants us to see, and that's that God is responding to Pharaoh's wickedness. And this is where we need the 430 years of backstory. Uh, if you were here last week, you, you may remember that Joseph moved Jacob, his father, and his large family of 72 people to Egypt because there was a seven-year famine going on. And Pharaoh was so grateful for what Joseph was doing for the nation that he happily welcomed them and he gave them the best land. Well, the book of Exodus opens many years later explaining that eventually a new Pharaoh came to fa- power who didn't know what Joseph had done. And so he looks out and he sees the million plus Israelites running around his nation and all he sees is a threat. And to try to control that threat, he enslaves the nation. But that didn't help control the Hebrew population. And so he decrees that all baby boys born to Israelites should be thrown into the Nile River. Pharaoh is the most sinful, wicked, evil guy we've encountered up to this point in scripture. And in him, we really see how our definition of sin plays out. Remember, sin is defining good and evil for yourself. It's this belief that we are wiser, we know better, and we care about ourselves and our well-being more than God does. And here, Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil to fit his own needs that he declares that it's good to enslave a population of people. It's a good thing if we mass murder a bunch of baby boys. Unsurprisingly, the people of Israel cry out in the midst of all this. And we're told in Exodus 2, starting in verse 23, that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God sees, takes note of, and responds to their cry. In fact, everything that takes place afterward, from Exodus 3 all the way on, is God's response through Moses and Aaron to bring justice against Pharaoh and Egypt, which is not surprising. What is surprising is that in the midst of all this, God shows mercy to Pharaoh. See, he could have took Pharaoh out with one hit, easily. 
and yet he goes through 10 rounds. And after each round, he gives Pharaoh a chance to humble himself, to submit to God and let the Israelites go. But each time we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart or he made his heart heavy. And that imagery is clear enough for us, right? Pharaoh is unreceptive to God's call. We might say that there's a wall there. But to the Egyptians, there was an added layer of meaning. See, ancient Egyptians believed that when you die, you went to judgment, which is where they would put the deceased individual's heart on one of those like old-timey scales. So on one side would be the heart, and the other side would be a single feather, which represented everything the Egyptians believed was good and just. And so if the heart wasn't heavier than the feather, they were found good and just, then they had a great afterlife. But if the heart was heavier, if they were evil and unjust, uh, then they were destroyed by Amit the devourer. That's not true. But do you see what it's saying? At the end of each round, Pharaoh made his heart heavier, guiltier, more deserving of condemnation to the point that his own advisors thought he was insane. See, we not only see God in this text as the triumphant king, we see him as a just one, responding to the heaviness of Pharaoh's heart. And that does raise a problem for us because we are often like Pharaoh. We have rebelled against God, we have defined good and evil for ourselves, and mistreated others in the process. All of our hearts are heavy on the scale of God's standard, according to Romans 3.23. And as we've noted before, a triumphant and just king is only good news to those who aren't wicked, which is not us. Which is why the last thing we need to see from our text is so important for us to grasp, and that is that God extends mercy. We've already noted how God gave Pharaoh 10 chances to humble himself, but God actually extends mercy far beyond Pharaoh to to everyone involved. Uh, Like we said earlier, the, the knockout blow when the angel of death came through the nation and killed every firstborn male, um, it was knockout blow. But before that happens, God has Moses announce to all the people what's coming and extend them mercy through the Passover lamb. See, if a household didn't want their firstborn son to die, they could slaughter a spotless lamb and smear its blood on the doorframe of their house. The lamb became the substitute or the the representative for the firstborn son. And so when the angel of death would come to their house, he would see the blood of the lamb and pass over that household, sparing those inside. And ever since that day, the Jews have celebrated Passover to remember God's provision for them to be rescued, not just from slavery, but from death itself. But there is a question. Why did the Jews have to do this? Like, it makes sense that the Egyptians, if they wanted to be spared, would need to do this, but why, why the Jews? Well, it's because the Jews' were, hearts were just as heavy as the Egyptians' as are ours, that we have all sinned. We are all deserving of death. And Hebrews 9.11 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. We're all in need of a Passover lamb. 
but we don't celebrate Passover anymore. There's a reason for that. And, and this guy named John the Baptist actually points it out to us in John 1:29. John was preaching to the people, telling that God was coming to set things right. And one day he sees Jesus walking across and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the one who was slaughtered for us on the cross. He is God's greatest extension of mercy to each one of us. And when we accept him as our Savior and King, we are covered by his blood and spared from God's just wrath. And that's the story of the Exodus. And my guess is that most of you know that story pretty well that you've grown up watching The Prince of Egypt or whatever movie adaptation that you've seen, and you might be wondering, okay, so what? What's the point of this story for me? Here's what I'm stressing tonight. is that this story is the story in the Old Testament. Everything flows out of it, and everything is tied back to it. Everything in an Israelite's life it's their calendar, their, their meals, everything was tied back to this event. It impacted everything for them. And I can't, can't help but wonder if the cross has had a similar impact on us. Certainly, Jesus dying on the cross was a larger event. On the cross, we see God triumphing, uh, triumphing over our greatest enemy. We see him deal justly with evil, and yet also extend mercy to us at great personal cost to himself. The cross should impact everything we do. But I think the question for us is, does it? Does the life-giving, world-changing event of the cross and the resurrection, for that matter, have the impact in our life that it should? And that's really what I'd like us to wrestle with in small groups. What type of impact should the cross have? And why hasn't it had that type of impact?